Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Lena. I'm an alcoholic. And I would like to thank the group for asking me to come over and share my experience with this process of recovery. Can everyone hear me well? Well, so um, I haven't done it in some time. <laughs> so uh, I guess today when I introduce myself as, as an alcoholic, I don't necessarily refer to alcoholism as my pathology, as an illness, although it is. Uh, when I think of alcoholism today, for me, it's my spiritual path. You know, it's that uh, sort of graceful predicament that was given me that broke down the resistance of personal will and uh, some other life became possible. Uh, and it's, it's actually very interesting because when I came here to these rooms and that was about 14 years ago that I started coming around, um, I would introduce myself as an alcoholic and what I would mean was that I was a victim. You know, I was a victim of this thing that I didn't want, you know, that I couldn't do anything about. I was a victim of my circumstances. I was a victim of my childhood. I was a victim of... Uh, people around me, that's sort of the the consciousness that most of us uh, enjoy <laughs> uh, when we come into these rooms. And, uh, you know, what happened uh, as the result of working the steps from the big book with a sponsor and working with a lot of people is that the change, change in consciousness resulted. And today when I refer to alcoholism, I can't see the uh, incredible grace of what was given me. Um, and uh, uh, the role it played in really transforming my life. And that's, uh, that's really incredible. I have a lot of gratitude for, it today, for this today. Uh, we as alcoholics, we, we tend to be a really willful people. Um, that's my experience, you know, with my, my own experience and people that I work with. You know, some people perhaps wake up one day and say, I want to know God better, and they set off on a spiritual path and most of us have to be broken. It seems to be the path, you know, for most of us. So that's it's kind of interesting. So here's my story. I was uh, born in an alcoholic country, and it's not Ireland. <laughs> um, so uh, drinking was a huge part of culture um, in the country and in the family where I grew up. Uh, my uh, biological father was an alcoholic. Uh, he uh, drank um uh, accessible. I don't have much memory of it. When he was 36, he committed suicide. Um, and uh, by that time, he was really gone. You know, he was uh, calling uh, 911. It was a different number in that country, but an equivalent of 911 for himself. He was, he really lost it. <clears throat> he was, you know, seeing things. He was hallucinating fully. He was physically erratic, and uh, and he uh, departed this life in a very painful way. He uh, drank some uh, uh, technical liquid, just basically melted his internal organs, and he didn't uh, die immediately. He uh, uh, died. He lived until the next day, um, and promised that if he can get over, he will never drink again. And he didn't make it. And um, so that was my biological father, and that my my mother remarried, and my. Uh, uh, stepfather was an alcoholic too, a uh, different type, but a drinking man. So I basically grew up in a family where uh, people drank excessively around me, and uh, there was uh, one member of the family, my mother, she was controlling everyone's drinking. Uh, so it was kind of that pull, you know, as I was, you know, sitting in the corner, biting my nails and picking my nose because I was, I was very restful as a child. You know, my mother was sort of wondering if I'm going to join her in controlling others or I'm going to join the, the man of the family who drank uh, excessively. <clears throat> so um, there is this uh, very accurate phrase that uh, I think is the first reference to the spiritual malady that the big book uses. It's in the doctor's opinion. Uh, when he talks about the state of being restless, irritable, and discontented. So uh, that's me. You know, I, uh, um, as, as long as I can remember, I was, um, I never felt quite right. I never felt quite comfortable. Uh, I never f- quite felt at home. I always felt different. You know, I do remember, you know, there was a lot of thinking going on, and there was a lot of anxiety. I just was unable as a child to just be still. You know, I was not unable to just sit and, 
just you know be in my body and be where or uh, the action was was happening, you know where life was flowing. You know I was constantly in this virtual reality that that my mind would generate, you know the reality of thought. Um, and um, and I remember the physical it manifested in the way I sort of one about life, you know, this, the, the habit of biting my nails. I was constantly humming. I was sort of trying to get away from myself at all times. And um, I remember that, you know, as a child. I remember, like, actually I have very few memories of, of my childhood for that same reason, that I was never present. I was never present for what was happening. I was, you know, escaping the, the, the here and now. And as I was a child, it was mostly, you know, biting my nails and, and you know, uh, composing music in my head and playing it out with my fingers, you know, completely silently. You know, then uh, at some moment I discovered alcohol. And my relationship with alcohol was just as experiential as my relationship with recovery. I was, uh, you know, sitting in the corner and I was observing my stepfather as he was drinking. And he was a very unfriendly, morose guy. And then he would have a drink and something would shift in him internally. And he would smile, and that would be the only circumstance under which he would smile, and I could sense that relief in him. And I was waiting for that relief, to be old enough to experience that relief. So when I was about 13 or 14, I don't really remember much, I had my first experience with alcohol. And um, unlike many other experiences that I had for the first time in my life, this one I remember very well. I drank with my friend. We drank the kind of stuff that children shouldn't be drinking. You know, I grew up in a country where alcohol was scarce, so we just drank what was available. And that day, some pepper vodka was available. And it was very strong, and it was very unpleasant to taste, and it didn't matter. Uh, because I was, you know, I was there to discover what, what it was that my stepfather was experiencing when he drank. And... um so I had the first drink, and, you know, the experience, as many people in this room describe it, you know, two things sort of happened. One is that this, uh, the uh, never uh, silent, these wheels of my mind that were constantly in motion gradually came to a stop, and there was this buzzing silence, and for the first time it was okay for me to be where I was. All of a sudden, life was fine. You know, I could actually stop and I could breathe fully, you know, not at the top of my lungs, but just fully, I could just like be there. Like I remember that experience. And the second thing that happened was that it appeared like the, I was the one who took the first drink and the first drink took the second drink and, and there was this no stopping point. And my brother found me in a dry bathtub in a pool of my own vomit sometime in the morning and we all had a good laugh. And, you know, I experienced some, uh, you know, alcohol poisoning and, you know, we sort of, there is a lot of joy, sort of, a lot of jokes that happens around drinking in the culture where I'm coming from. So it's the people like to talk about it because it's such a big, big part of life. But it's this whole vocabulary that exists that doesn't exist in this language, you know, all of the, um, just because alcohol is such a big, big part of, of life. You know, for example, there is this term, you know, if you buy something new and it could be a pair of boots because we didn't have much, or it could be a car, which would be very, very rare. There is this, this verb that exists for, you know, drinking to make the purchase last. You know, so we're not just drinking, we're doing this thing that will make this purchase last. And there is a special verb for the morning drinking. So, you know, when somebody is drinking in the morning, it wouldn't be like, I'm not drinking, I'm doing this other medicinal thing to make myself feel better. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that that kind of drinking is permitted. Um, and, you know, the, just the standard for drinking is, like, really, really, really different. So, like, you know, drinking alone is fine. Drinking in the morning is fine. You know, drinking excessively is fine. You know, sleeping in a gutter occasionally is fine. You know, just really, really sort of high. And even then, you know, I from the very beginning, I did know that my drinking was different than most other people's. You know, from the very beginning, I knew, you know, we would go to a company to drink. Uh, and, you know, the culture where I... Uh, learn to drink. Um, there was a lot of, you know, drinking around the, you know, the, the table. So there is food on the table and there is alcohol, and people all drink together and say nazdarovia to each other, and you know, just keep on drinking. And you know, I remember from the, you know, first times when I started engaged in that kind of drinking, you know, my attention was constantly on the bottle. You know, and on how fast the drinks are served. You know, people would have a drink and they would start a conversation, would they would dance, they would do some other stuff that people do when they socialize. And for me my, my attention was on the bottle. 
you know, when the next is going to be served, you know, how often it is not served fast enough, is it going to be enough for me, how you are drinking, you know, I would watch how much other people were drinking, I was obsessed. You know, it, you know, this, this, as soon as alcohol is in the body, there is no stopping, stopping point. And, you know, I learned later on that that's what our literature calls the allergy of the body. That's an abnormal reaction to alcohol. That's what I exhibited from the very first time I drank. And I work with a lot of other people to know that sometimes we sort of acquire that, um, uh, that abnormality. We start as normal drinkers and then over time with drinking, we develop allergy to alcohol. I know that for me, it was there from the very beginning. And even though I did know that my relationship with alcohol was off, I didn't want to know that, so I didn't really acknowledge that for myself. And as a matter of fact, I set up, set out to prove to myself and to others that it wasn't. Because at that point, the only thing that helped me to live and to breathe in, in a deep way, not at the top of my lung, was alcohol, lungs was, was alcohol. And I just wouldn't, wouldn't, willing, wouldn't be willing to consider, you know, the alternative. Not drinking was not an option. And so for the next 20 years, there was, you know, there was something in me, you know, that voice that they talk about, you know, I was not being any too smart, you know, that kind of voice, you know, that there was a knowledge that my drinking was abnormal. There was a knowledge that I'm, I'm pulled to that because I'm in a relationship with that substance. I'm not in a relationship with other people, you know, when I'm drinking socially. I'm not in a relationship with, you know, my husband when I'm married. I'm not in a relationship with, you know, my studies when I'm in college. I'm in a relationship with that thing. That's primary. That's the only thing that really, truly matters. Everything else, whichever way, you know, the chips will fall, that's fine. But, you know, this is one thing that just all of my attention was absolutely there. And it took about 20 years in my case, and I know some smarter people, people who learn a little bit better, but in my case, you know, for the life to deliver this message that, you know, you're not being in alignment with the truth. There is something that you know is true, but you're not willing to see that. And, you know, the life was delivering this message for about 20 years. So for the next 20 years, I I was drinking the way, uh, well, I didn't necessarily drink the same way as I drank the first time, but if I had it my way, if there were no social restrictions, if there was plenty of alcohol available, this is how I would drink. And, you know, I did get married when I was fairly young, and, you know, the recurring, you know, scene on a Sunday morning for us would be, you know, my, my husband is not talking to me, and, you know, you know, and I'm, you know, showing up, you know, with a huge headache in the living room, you know, telling him that, you know, of course you can be mad at me, but, you know, unless you tell me what it is that I did this time, I, I don't really know how to respond. And it was just a recurring thing, you know, drinking, blacking out, taking my clothes off, dan- dancing, leaving with other men that I came, arrived with constantly. And, you know, that continued for some time, and there were other things that took my attention to, um, you know, one of them is uh, when I was about 25 uh, it became just absolutely impossible for me to continue living in that country, <laughs> which is, yeah, I, I can see, you know, like, you know, the, the things that we do to escape, you know, like that was one thing that was really missing, you know, like one of our most favorite things to do in the country where I grew up was to sit at the, in the kitchen and, you know, pass warm vodka around, you know, no ice cubes, no, uh, no glasses, often, you know, that's just too glamorous, and complain how not free we were, and how if only we had the freedoms that you guys had in this country, you know, if we could travel where we wanted, if we could have educational opportunities, if we could, freedom of speech, that was most important for me, though I didn't really have much of an opinion on anything, because my interest was very limited, you know, but all of those things seemed to be in the way, and, you know, when I was 25, I just basically just forced my husband to to quit that country and we'll come to this one and we'll leave much, it will we'll live much better and they will not drink as much. And uh, ironically, about you know ten years after that decision, I find myself sitting in my kitchen in the city of Hoboken in New Jersey, right across Manhattan, over the um, Hudson River. Uh, marriage gone. I took advantage of a lot of educational opportunities, no good job, no friends, you know, drinking alone. I mean, much better alcohol and much better conditions, glass and ice cubes and all of those things, but being unable to put it down. Everything's really gone out of my life except that drink. Talking about freedom, right? 
and uh, and I can see how you know that's what what really what's been happening. What's beautiful about this process of the steps is you know as we really get into it and work it and work with others and we just see how it works. You know the first step is really you know there is nothing sort of artificially imposed about it. Like we don't really have to do much for the first step. That's what life's doing. You know, it's life is delivering the message, right? You have no power, choice, control over whether you will drink or not. You know, and, you know, and I'm just trying to pretend that that's not the truth. And then it's just a matter of time, how long it's going to take. And in my case, it took quite a bit. So I'm being brought to this point gracefully, but, you know, it didn't seem like, you know, any kind of grace at the time. You know, by that time, I'm wearing sunglasses in December, you know, I have this, like, long bang so that, you know, God forbid you see me or I see myself in the mirror. I literally cannot face myself, right? I'm, I'm brought to this point where um, it's just painful to be, and alcohol is not working as well as it used to work. You know, there used to be this high when, you know, you have one or two, and it's just like, I love everybody. And then by the end, it's like more of a kind of morose and... You know, it's not that kind of drinking. It just doesn't bring that relief. We're drinking more for the oblivion. And uh, and it was about, and I can't even say, I don't have any kind of uh, uh, timeline set in my head because everything at that point, about three years before I was brought into the rooms of AA and when I was really helped, um, it's just everything is a blur. You know, basically my day starts with me waking up and, you know, making myself a promise that I'm not going to drink and then ending up drinking uh, drinking at the end of the day. And it goes on and on and on like this. You know, I wake up and I make a, another commitment that I'm not going to drink and I end up drinking. And sometimes I can white knuckles for a couple of days and then I end up drinking. And uh, one morning I wake up and uh, I don't remember that morning, by the way. It only it came into my consciousness years later, that there was something that was a day, and I don't even know what year that was or what month it was, because everything was equally gray and equally painful. And I remember there was, there was something different about one morning, and I sort of emotionally retained it as a memory. Like, I know that, that something shifted there, but I don't know when. But it was a day when, you know, same thing happened. I wake up in the morning, and this, this thought comes in, this delusional thought that I'm, I will be able to control my drinking today. And there was this internal response that was the use. There was this like deep at the core of my being understanding that there is absolutely nothing I can do to make myself not drink. And it wasn't the kind of struggle that I had before because I knew that, right? As I said, I've known this for many years. Um, But before that, it was like, you know, I can't stop drinking, but I'm still trying. Right, I can't stop drinking, but I can't try this thing, or I can't try that thing, or I just should try harder to not drink. But that particular morning, it was just, I can't, period. You know, I just, like, for all of these years that I've been not letting myself know the truth, the truth itself sort of broke through, and it came as that knowledge. And I remember how... Um, you know, when they talk about, like, being honest with yourself, that, that's what they talk about. They don't talk about, you know, if I'm lying about my drinking, whether I have two or three. I mean, I mean, all of this obviously comes with the territory, but it's really being honest with ourselves, really seeing this fundamental truth that we've been avoiding and being courageous enough or just being graced with an ability to, to admit them. And I can see how from that moment where really nothing happened, right, other than just a realization that that's it. There is absolutely nothing that I can do on my own power. I can see how everything started changing. You know, I can see it was roughly at that point that, you know, I was in a relationship with somebody and we were, you know, (laughs) we were so gone, you know, like I was gone, you know, out to lunch completely, and 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 then later on, I, I learned that you know on a given day he could have made he could have done like up to a hundred Percocets a day, and I didn't know that. Like we were like really, really, <laughs> there was very little intimacy in that relationship. Um, um, and you know that person obviously needed help. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first eighty meetings that I went to, I I, I went to those meetings to support that person. Because even though I knew what was the truth about myself, you know, there was still something that, you know, separated me. You know, there was, you know, there was still, that delusion was still 
still going. So, you know, I, I come to A meetings and, you know, and you people talk weird. You talk about stuff that people shouldn't be talking. You know, they're talking about their emotions. They present themselves in a light that's sort of not protective of the image much. It's just, you know, like, I don't know what you guys are doing here. You know, it's, 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 it's dangerous, right? What you do, like, I mean, how can you talk this, you know, say these things about yourself? And, you know, it was, you know, it was as much as it was very challenging. I mean, I mean, one cannot really appreciate to some extent, you know, when people are being real. Like, this is the kind of stuff that touches. Right? And I remember I would, it was at one of the meetings. And by the way, I drink, right? I go to meetings, I drink before, I drink after. I haven't, you know, I haven't stopped drinking yet. And I remember I went to one of the meetings and there was this woman from uh, Europe and she was roughly my age and, uh, and she was telling her story and I was like, I couldn't help but going through this mental checklist of done it, done it, done it, done it. And, you know, the conclusion was that, you know what, I might be one of you guys. And uh, even though I made an admission of personal powerlessness, I still continue drinking because there is absolutely nothing in me that makes it possible for the existence of any other power that could come in and operate in my life, right? And again, here in this respect, I'm, I'm such a big victim compared to all of you because I'm coming from, you know, from the Soviet Union, right? The whole, you know, country was anti-God. You know, God was officially banned. You know, the only piece of religious education that I ever received was this uh, mandatory class in college, which was called scientific atheism. That's as close as I've, I've ever been exposed to God it was in that class. And I did really well because, you see, I sort of fancied myself to be this, you know, kind of an intellectual. And, you know, that it, it sort of was, in my mind, it would enhance my image to be such a strong, independent, uh, you know, person. So, you know, I, that's what I thought I believed. You know, and that's another thing, you know, when we come really closely and we start looking at ourselves, you know, we just tell ourselves lies. We just live in this reality that none of this is happening. It only happens in our minds. We are absolutely unaware of the hidden motives, of the deep beliefs, of what drives us, of what motivates us. You know, at least I live that way. You know, I was completely, reality did not matter. Just the reality that, you know, whatever I wanted to believe, whatever my mind give, would give rise to and create as an image of myself and you and the world and everything, that was my reality. So I continue going to, going, going to meetings and I'm, I'm still drinking because, you know, I'm such a victim. I don't know God. I can't understand God. I was damaged growing up in that country, obviously. I'm still a victim to a large extent. And that's, you know, that's the second step at, 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 at work somewhere, right? I haven't even been, I haven't even stopped drinking yet, but, you know, life's already delivering, you know, what, you know, we use the steps to deliver, you know, the uh, certain messages, right? The forces us to see the truth about certain aspects. So I go to meetings and I, I, I and I uh, and I am trying not to drink, but I can, so I come to meetings drunk. And you know, and thanks thanks to you guys, you know, I I, I grew uh, I got sober in an environment which was not um, very solution based. Um, so you know, there was a lot of judgment, and you know, and there was a lot of acceptance and love. There was a lot of everything, and yet, you know, there was place for me. I always felt comfortable, you know, even even if drunk, thinking that you don't know that I'm drunk. I would go there. I felt very comfortable. You really embraced me. You really made it, you know, possible for me to go through that insane period until I hit on, upon something that, that, that really worked. So I go to meetings and I drink, and uh, uh, one of the meetings I come to, and uh, there, was a <laughs> there was a meeting, a beginner's meeting. And it's a beginner's meeting where beginners are allowed, not allowed, but encouraged to speak first. And it's the meeting where they, they do uh, steps 1, 2, 3 out of 12 and 12, and, and then 1, 2, 3 again. It's like the beginner's waltz. Never, we never get to the transformative aspect of the, of the steps. Just, you know, dance around 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3 out of 12 and 12. And, you know, the beginner, people under 90 days sobriety, they speak. And I fall into that category because I have zero. <laughs> and I speak. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, there is place for everything. It's, it's really amazing. You know, like I open my mouth and I start crying, you know, what a big victim I am. And that was one of the God steps. And it happened to be Easter Sunday. And there happened to be one man at that meeting who believed that on an Easter Sunday a miracle can happen. 
And he came up to me after the meeting, and we walked, and he gave me a ride home. And we were sitting in his car, and he was talking to me. He was talking to me about his beliefs. He was talking to, about, to me about Jesus, and all of it was totally foreign to me. So he was talking, and there were two strange things happening. One is that, like, at the head level, it was going like, blah, 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 because I couldn't accept, at this level, I couldn't accept anything he was saying. It didn't matter to me. But at the same time, his conviction was so strong, and he himself experienced the transformation as a result of his belief that what was delivered was was transmitted to me is that trust, that on an Easter Sunday, a miracle can happen. And, uh, and I went up upstairs uh, to my apartment, and for the very first time in my life, I got on my knees, and I prayed. And that was a true prayer. That was not a kind of prayer, you know, like when we sometimes bargain, you'll give me this, I'll give you that, you know, I'll beha- behave like this if you give me this, and I'll be, you know, like all of that. You know, that's none of this is true, right? What's true is I'm done. That's what's true. And whether you exist or not, I don't care, because there is, it's, not, it's now yours, whoever you happen to be. And that was the last time I drank. So my, uh, um, my sober date is an Easter Sunday of uh, 2000. Uh, so I'll be celebrating 13 years later, uh, later this year. So uh, step two, effectively, you know, it's really interesting. And I worked the steps after that, you know, in a more formal way. And that was great. It was very helpful, very instructive. Uh, but, you know, it just really amazes me how life has been delivering what really the essence of the steps you know, bringing me closer and closer to that moment of breakdown of personal will, you know, where the, the, the mind was effectively checkmated, you know, done. There is nothing I can do. And then, you know, after that's done, giving me something that conceptually was absolutely foreign, right? Absolutely foreign. But it was what happened was a transmission. That's what our literature talks about, you know, when Abby walks into uh, Bill's room, and Bill's drinking, right? He's still sitting at the table. He's still drinking. And, you know, what gets communicated to, uh, to Bill is not that, oh, Abby hasn't, hasn't drank for two months. You know, at that point, Bill has been trying, and, and he was able to, at some point to put together stretches of time that were longer than that. It's not what he's impressed with. He's impressed with this, and there is something about his eyes. There is some transformation that happened to him that's so appealing. You know, his uh, roots grasp new soil. That's what gets communicated, not the, you know, wordy message. We don't even know exactly what they talked about. You know, we know that what really touched him is the transformation, and that it's really the transformation in and of itself has the power to touch. It has the power to penetrate. It has the power to, you know, affect the person at a level different than the mind. And that's really the beauty. That's what we do to each other. You know, and that's why, you know, when we talk about working with other people, that's the only thing that we have to, to give is our awakened consciousness, really. You know, all of the words, everything else, and whether we do it right or not, whether we do it, you know, you know, this way or that way, none of this really matters. If we're not transform- transformed, if we haven't really experienced that, we cannot, we don't really have the power to touch in somebody else. And I'm trying to remember that, you know, working with other people. So, uh, so here it is, you know, April 24th of 2000, last day. And, you know, and I wake up and I experience, for a certain period of time, I experience what they sometimes refer to in the fellowship as a pink cloud, you know, which actually is a spiritual experience. I just have absolutely no context for it, right? At that point, I just, I don't know any of it. It's just so completely foreign. But there is a certain ease that, that sort of descended upon me. You know, I'm not so dominated by my mind. You know, I don't need to be right. I don't need to make sure that you guys treat me the way I deserve, right? I don't, you know, I don't need, you know, for anything to be in any other way than than it is. And it continues for some time, and it's really beautiful. But, uh, you know, in the fellowship where I got sober, people didn't talk much about um, what really constitutes the program of recovery. You know, because I thought that, you know, all right, I'm not drinking, so I'll just, you know, if I if I will continue not drinking longer... You know, I'll be okay. You know, that's that's what sobriety is, and and that's what I started doing. You know, I'm going to meetings, I'm doing service, I'm baking banana bread. But if you didn't notice that I added walnuts to the recipe, I'm upset. 
You know, I'm, I start working with some you know, other, other people and we do this, what I call today the drama management, right? You know, when your life gets explosive, we'll talk about it and we'll blame them and we'll do what we usually do because there is, the transformation hasn't really happened. You know, I'm still full of resentment, I'm still full of fears, I'm still, you know, full of guilt, shame, and remorse because I've harmed so many people, you know, drinking or not drinking. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. You know, I'm not okay. And, um, and for me, this period of, you know, really kind of self-management continues for two years and it became very painful. And I was doing a lot of the things that other people were doing. You know, I was, uh, went on medication <laughs> twice. I went, actually, the first time I put myself on medication, I just started taking my boyfriend's Prozac because it just, it's gotten heavy and I can't drink. And um, and then, you know, I went to psychiatrist and I went to psychologist and, uh, you know, I've done lots of networking. You know, a lot of the things that, you know, people say help and, you know, self-help has certain value and, you know, therapy has given me certain awareness, but not, nothing has given me the transformation that I needed to stay sober. And uh, so uh, for me, it lasted about two years. At the end of two years, I've gotten severely depressed. I couldn't get out under my uh, from, from under my blanket, I uh, forgot to pay the rent. I became very self-obsessed, but compared to that pink cloud period that I experienced, which I don't even remember how long that was, I think it was substantial because it actually produced some results, like my apartment got transformed, like I all of a sudden I had the plans that, that were actually doing well. You know, there are certain things that, you know, I guess it takes a little time, you know, for, you know, the environment was good <laughs> somehow. And then, you know, the mind came back and said, oh, I'm doing it really well, so I'll try to do it harder or better. And that was really the end of it. And so for two two years I last, and, you know, I'm completely depressed. I'm totally self-obsessed, you know. I'm so sensitive. You know, you do everything anyone does. It's just totally wrong. The only person I can think about is me. You know, I don't know how to, to, to help those poor girls who experience constant drama because my life is ongoing drama, and I'm just a, a total mess. And... uh Again, gracefully, you know, gracefully, life sort of gives me, delivers this, you know, gift of surrender again. And uh, it, again, it comes out as, a, as another prayer, which I call like a true prayer. And at that time, I have a lot of like toys, you know, AA toys. I have like a God box and, you know, everything is, you know, I have a little meditation room and, I, you know, I get on a pillow and I just like, you know, want to crawl out of my skin because I still cannot be with myself for a minute. And um, another prayer comes out in a written form because that was the style at the time. And uh, and it's a true one. And it's basically just, you know, I uh, I don't know how to live. I don't know how to make life work. Everything I do brings about more and more suffering. You know, I'm completely self-obsessed. I'm in total misery. I don't know how to live. And out of that prayer comes out a flyer. And it's a flyer for a big book study. And there is this gentleman, Howard G., uh, uh, from uh, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, big book group. It's the first big book group in our state, uh, is doing the uh, big book workshop. And it's an eight-week eight, eight week thing, and it's in neighboring city. And, uh, you know, a group of us go, and uh, everyone is going through the motion and doing it. I'm still fighting, right? I'm still resisting. You, were, you, you need to show me something. You know, it's just not enough for me to really, you know, do it just because somebody told told me that I can do it. And you know what's interesting is now thinking back at, at, at that time, and um, again, it's just sort of the memory that came a little bit uh, later. You know, there was a guy in Hoboken who would uh, go to meetings, and he had a big book under his arm, and he was not liked. He was not liked. You know, people would talk behind his back. People would just sort of, you know, roll their eyes on him. Uh, he was not a popular guy. And he would, would come at the meeting and he would share. And I would not understand a word of what he was saying, but whatever it is that he was saying had a deep attraction for me. You know, there was something in my being that was recognizing what he was saying as the truth. But my desire to be with the popular crowd was more, more important. You know, I really wanted to be accepted by those guys. You know, A is my home. I really ma made myself, you know, fully dependent. And uh, that's what I would opt for. I wouldn't come up to Terry. I wouldn't ask him, what are you talking about? Can you help me through the book? So just to, to be uh, 
just to be clear on that, because sometimes, you know, the mind has it as, you know, oh, there was nobody who, uh, who delivered the message. There was a message. I wasn't ready for it until I was ready. And so I go for this uh, workshop, and, you know, there is uh, three or four or five ses- sessions of wasted. I'm not really doing the work with the group, which is what's what's encouraged. And then at the, I think, in second to last session, the speaker shares about something, some experience that he overcame. It's an immense stage, and he was talking about, sharing about some experience that was fairly dramatic. And he talked about it with such freedom that I, there is something in me that recognized that as something that I wanted. You know, I really wanted to be free because I was not free of, you know, my whole, this whole never-ending narrative. I was in complete prison from it, you know. I was still a victim even more so because, you know, during the years there was a certain arrogance that was added to that victimhood. Because when you come into the rooms, like, it's sort of broken. But in two years, you know, the ego gets really empowered. You know, I'm a big shot. You know, I work with people. I sponsor people. So, uh, and that, you know, that little episode when I, something showed itself to me, and that was the freedom from what, in my mind, would be a dramatic experience, and I wanted it. So I came up to the guy, and it was too late for me to go with the group through the steps. So I asked him what group he was from, and he told me, uh, you know, the, the group group ad, uh, address where they meet, and it was a little bit of a hike. It was like 45 minutes of ride out of the city where you can, you know, we had meetings on every corner, literally. And, you know, I made that meeting my home group, and it remained my home group for about eight years, maybe even longer, I think even longer than that. Um, and there I met a woman, and, you know, everyone in that group, they did believe in working the steps, and, you know, I started hearing things that I never heard before, and, and, and you know, I availed myself of really what the program of recovery is, and that absolutely transformed me. You know, uh, when we came to the fourth step, and maybe I didn't see everything the way I see today, because there is an incredible value to transmitting what we realize to other people. You know, when I started working with other people, everything exploded. I didn't really have any dramatic experiences going through the process, but, you know, for me, it really came in working with other people. And maybe because working with other people was one of those, you know, promises that I would never aspire to. You know, would come to the rooms and you guys guys would read this, you know, nine-step promises, and one of them is, you know, uh, we will find usefulness. Right. I didn't care for that, you know. I was so self-centered. I was so in my mind. I was so, you know, so self-obsessed that, you know, that promise just there was nothing about it that was, would be desirable for me. And that's where I found the most freedom, you know, the most transformation I found in, you know, when that promise came true. It's quite amazing. It's just quite amazing. You know, what's amazing is how this process, nothing what the mind can conceive and think of that or imagine it to be. It's just absolutely, absolutely nothing uh, like that. And, you know, the fourth step, you know, we come to the fourth step and there is this, uh, you know, what we, you know, we have the beautiful tools that help us to expose this virtual reality that the mind gives rise to. You know, we, we get to see that, you know, there is this sort of life that's happening and there is this, you know, my narrative that's happening, and it just goes on top of life, and that creates the conflict with life. You know, there is this story of me, you know, this is who I am, and this is where I'm going, and this is what I'm, this is what I'm like, and this is how other people should see me, and this is how I should act so that people can see me that way, and, and this is how people should treat me, and these are the things that are good, this is the things that I believe in, this is the things that I don't believe in, you know, and all of this narrative, and none of this is happening. You know, it never really occurred to me that this is really, this is a realm of what's not happening. What's happening is life, right here, right now. But I'm constantly lost in my mind, in what I want, in, in how this or that aspect is different from what I think I want, you know, my values of, and, you know, all of my wants, they're all, they all come down to, you know, some kind of gratification. I just want to feel good. That's the only thing that I'm really concerned with. I have absolute intolerance to any kind of pain, even boredom for that matter. I just do everything to maximize the pleasure. I gossip about you because it pops me up a little bit, makes me feel better. You know, I work on, you know, building that image to you so that I can feel better. Everything's about me. I go in a relationship with another person and, you know, and God forbid you deviate from this plan that I have for you. 
you know, and I will only love you if you act the exact, in the exact accordance with this plan, and I'll punish you if you don't. And that's how I live, right? And that's how I live. And I'm in constant fear of everything because and the biggest thing of it being life, I'm just afraid to live. You know, I'm afraid to, not even to take risks, I'm just, af- I'm afraid to engage with life. You know, at that point, I'm a professional, I come to my office and I, I dread that the phone might, might call, my, 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 my dream. You know, I'm just afraid of everything. And that's what this process of the steps reveals for us, right? That's what it makes it possible for us to see. You know, when we look at the resentments, the resentment essentially is, you know, the way in which my, argue, my mind habitually argues with what is. Whenever I have an opinion that any aspect of my life could be better, and I insist on that, that's the resentment. I'm in resentment. And, you know, at that point, time, I mean, every, you know, I'm just the one big working resentment because none aspect of my life is, 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 is to my satisfaction. You know, and I'm, and, you know, and I'm in the constant state of being restless, irritable, discontented because something's going to go wrong. I know that. I'm, I'm living this, like, life of self-sabotage. You know, because I, that's what I expect it to be. My consciousness generates, you know, this, this appearance of life of a victim. And we get to see it, all of this. And what happens with the first step, and it's really, if we're really sore and if we're really honest, what happens is this just, you know, incredible gift. You know, this separation from the mind happens. You know, an ability to step out of the mind and look at it. Like, it never occurred to me that it was possible. I thought that I was the mind. There was just one, this thinking entity. I thought it was me. There was no other consciousness that was going on. There was no other reality. That was the only reality that I knew. And the fourth step allows, allowed me to step out and see. And if, there is, if that's possible, if there is some other consciousness that can observe this trouble-making, you know, virtual reality that my mind gives rise to every moment and every moment, maybe I'm not necessarily what I think I am. And they just totally blew my mind, you know. And then we go into to another person, step five, and... And then, uh, and then step eight, step nine. You know, the fifth step, we go to another person and, uh, and we commit to be naked. We commit to be honest, right? And for me, like, I didn't know what that was. You know, I was constantly, you know, I was constantly working. You know, like, I didn't know how to be with somebody without working them, without trying to project a certain image on them, to pretend myself to be this or that you know, to show myself in a certain way. I just didn't know how. Like, I, I just, I mean, I didn't know how. And this is what we do in the fifth step. And that's what has such an incredible power. That's why these steps are so incredibly powerful, is that, you know, there is something in me that allows that vulnerability, you know, that that just intimacy with another human, human being and the ability to perhaps not play a game. You know, that's really, that's the power of a confession, right? And that's the, and then you get, you know, even further insight in, you know, how your particular mind argues with what is, creating suffering through that. And then we go into six and seven, and that's, that's really a beautiful process, right? Of just, uh, you know, what happens after the fifth step, I guess, is that there is, all of a sudden there is this huge awareness how I'm all of these things that I saw in the fourth step and there is like nothing that I can do about it, you know? You know, once you've seen that, oh, you know, I'm a habitual liar, you know, like I don't know how to be honest with people. I just don't know how to be myself. I don't know how not to judge. I don't know how not to gossip. I don't know how not to resent. I don't know how not to fear. And, you know, the six and seven steps, they do take care of some of it, but, you know, more so in my experience, there is more of an awareness of all of those things. And then, then, you know, we are left with this, you know, in this beautiful place. Am I going to judge myself for that, or am I going to just allow myself to see the truth? Because a lot of us get into that trap at step, step six and seven when, you know, you know, I see the resentment, but I'm not supposed to be resentful, so I will either not see it, or I will judge myself for that. And that's, per, ego perpetuates itself. It just continues this, you know, this dance of, of not accepting what is, right? Not even allowing ourselves to see what's here. 
So that's what's very important. And, you know, I haven't come to sort of this way of seeing and realizing things the first time through the steps. You know, the first time through the steps for me was more like, you know, you know, kind of technical doing it right, because that's sort of my nature. You know, doing it right, doing it better, <laughs> you know. And, you know, it, it's and it's all beautiful. You know, I've done the steps several times, and, and uh, they meet you with where you are, right? And there is this always incredible depth about every step, no matter what level of consciousness we're at. And that's what really makes it a divinely inspired document, because it speaks to very, you know, to spoke to my very, very primitive, linear, you know, perspective when I was at the beginning of the process 13 years ago. And it speaks to me today at a much deeper level. And it's, it's really beautiful. And then there is the eighth and ninth step, and, you know, and that's even more challenging, because, you know, when we go to the sponsor and, you know, we have a commitment of being you know, naked, being honest, you know, at least sponsor is somebody that we know and hopefully trust. And here we go to people we don't like. And if you were anything like me, like, I didn't really like many people. They never gave me exactly what I wanted because I gave them the power to reflect back to me that, that I'm good, but I wasn't really good. Neither was I bad, right? It was just the misuse of the power that make me miserable just as a result of the decision. And then we go to other people, and that's why the amends can be really, really powerful. Because to bring that level of honesty to somebody and, and at, at the fear of being rejected, it's, it's really it's a big leap. You know, for, ego, for, for, for a strong ego, it's, it's a very, very undesirable act to do. And, you know, if we trust in the process, we still do it. That's why a lot of people experience, you know, uh, very deep openings during the ninth step. Because it's, it can be really, really powerful, and then we settle into, in into this as a way of life in ten and eleven. And uh, and I was personally, I was really lucky. I was really drawn into spirituality. You know, at some point, you know, there, there was this kind of game with God when I was chasing God and I was doing all of the things so that I I'm close with God. And at some point, it it just totally shifted. This whole game shifted, and it was like. You know, God's pursuing me. You know, it's like they sometimes in real spiritual traditions they talk about you know having your head in the tiger's mouth. That's it. You know, I, you know, I thought that you know at this point I'm doing well. I haven't drank, you know, for some time. Have a little bit of money, <clears throat> and you know my goal always was like I'll go to France, I'll go this and that, and none of this. I completely lost interest to any of this. You know, I find myself going to like a Zen Buddhist monastery to meditate in 55 degrees, you know, in December, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15 hours, depending on, you know, the day. And it's, you know, I do these things that, you know, I can't really sell to anybody, right? I can't even rationally sell, sell them, to, them to myself because there is nothing rational about it, you know? When, you know, when, you, when that game's played, it's powerful, and it's all-consuming, and it's completely rational. And that really is, uh, that really is, you know, uh, bringing us closer and closer to, like, really understanding what's going on here, that, you know, what I do doesn't matter. It never mattered, right? It never mattered when I was drinking. It doesn't matter today. It doesn't matter what I want you know, what I want doesn't matter, what makes me good, feel good doesn't matter, because it's not how this game is played. You know, the, the, the game seems to be, the purpose of the game is to wake me up and not to make me feel good. You know, I would always move through life thinking that, you know, if, if I feel good, that's the measure of how well I'm doing, right? Escaping life, really, not being present for life. I'll do anything to feel good. I was a complete slave to what I can do to feel good. And what starts showing itself is that, you know, the purpose of life is not that. You know, the experiences that I'm given are to wake me up. And that means that pain is good. Right? And if and all of the moments where the awakening really happened or some deep insight happened, that would be in those moments of pain, through those moments of pain. You know, there is something else going on that I always thought was and that's why, you know, you know, to say that alcoholism is anything other than gift, 
like I, I just don't have that other perspective. I just don't know how else it can be viewed because it's just that's something that all of a sudden, you know, placed me into life which has purpose, meaning, but not in the way the mind would have it, right? It's 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 just a completely it's it's a totally different game. It's it's a it's the meaning and and purpose is to live this life in a state of free fall without having anything to hold on to. You know, just trusting that anything's possible and nothing is and nothing is certain. And there is a comfort that can be found in that just because that's the truth of reality. The only thing we know about life is that we'll die. There is no other certainty that we're given. Every anything can change today, tomorrow, at any moment. The only thing that's certain is that we'll die. You know, and that's what I really was lacking. I can see how the root of the pain that drove me to drink was that you know, the, the selective, you know, I'll only take what feels good and I will reject what doesn't. And uh, this freedom that I discovered, and that's really quite amazing and very counterintuitive. It's not a freedom from. It's not a free freedom from pain. It's not a freedom from fear. It's not a freedom from resentment. It's a fear. It's, it's a freedom to allow a resentment if the experience is a resentment. It's a freedom to allow fear if the experience is the fear. It's a freedom to allow pain, if that happened to be the experience. It's the freedom to not go against life. And that that's the courage aspect of faith, right? You know, when they talk about in our literature that people of faith have, have courage, that's the courage. That the courage is to allow life to show up and be experienced in the form and shape that it comes. And that... That truly is a gift. And it might not be a gift if you're sitting and you're in the middle of a lot of emotional pain that you might create it. Uh, and I know that. And it might not seem that way, but uh, there is an incredible freedom is in being able to face and open to life honestly. And uh, uh, and that's, to me, that's really is the biggest promise uh, of all of the steps is really just this inability not to not, not fight and the trust that my my interest is always in mind somewhere there, but that might, that interest might be different from whether I will feel good this morning, uh, this moment or not. So there is a certain wisdom that I came to trust, and that really is uh, kind of uh, how it came out today. So and it's uh, nine o'clock exactly, and I would like to thank you again for uh, you know allowing me to come and share my experience, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.